Welcome. My name is David Yoakum. I'm the director of the lab at DC. It is my pleasure to have Schroeder Stribling with me today. Schroeder is the executive director of In Street Village, which in a moment I'm going to ask you to describe some of what that is. But at a high level, Schroeder is really a expert who's had a very rich and I think inspiring career working on issues of poverty, of women's mental health, of homelessness, of mental illness, and a lot of experience interacting with individuals grappling with these issues. And in this capacity, you've also been a member of the, the um, Interagency Council on Homelessness, and so you're also working with the mm -hmm. district somewhat. So with that, let me actually start off with a question mm -hmm. that I want to get a little bit into what we know about homelessness, you know, mm -hmm. the numbers of people who are homeless on any given night, what we know about who these individuals are. Mm -hmm. But before doing that, why don't we start at a step zero what does it mean to be homeless? Like, how do we actually, mm -hmm. what does that actually mean? How do we measure it? Mm -hmm. Some types of homelessness we would recognize on their face. So people who are on the street who don't have a home to go to, that's homelessness. There are deeper levels of the meaning, however, that are really more about not having a permanent place on which you can count on to live not having, say, your name on a lease, not paying rent anywhere. So they're the hardest group of people who are homeless to really see and understand as a part of the homeless population are people who are what we call doubled up or tripled up with family members or friends or who are couch surfing from place to place. So it's harder to see those folks and to understand how many of them there are. And it, for that reason and others, we never get a very, very accurate count of how many people are homeless, but we can get a sense of the order of magnitude. Right. And so what does that order of magnitude look like in the district? In the district, we participate, as do all jurisdictions that receive HUD funding, in an annual, what's called a point-in-time count of the number of people who are homeless, which takes place one evening, a cold night usually, in the middle of winter, when teams of trained volunteers, and it's something that anybody can do, and I would encourage people to consider it, it's a powerful experience as a volunteer. Teams of volunteers fan out across the city, and we get a snapshot of the number of people who are without homes that night. So the teams may, the teams primarily are looking for people who are street, what we consider street bound. Mm -hmm. And in general, the people who are street bound are much fewer in number than people who are in shelter or people who are in transitional settings, which means they do not have a permanent place to count on. Mm -hmm. So when we pull all those numbers together, that gives us our point in time snapshot and here in D.C., we have the number for 2017, so that count was done in February. And in the spring months, the numbers will come out, and there were articles, generally articles in the paper about it. And around 7,500 individuals were found to be homeless on that night in February. It's important to remember that that's not an annualized number. That doesn't tell us how many people experience homelessness in a year, right. just how many people that night. Right, and that 7,500, those are individuals who are, make sure I heard that right, are out on the street. It's not including the No, it does, include, it does include the shelter population. I see. Yeah, mm -hmm. I see. Well, so what do we know about the 
the types of people who are finding themselves homeless and and why they're finding themselves in these situations. I mean, are these the you know the same individuals? Is it a lot of mm-hmm. flux? Mm-hmm. Do we know anything about the mm-hmm. demographics of them? Mm-hmm. Well, for starters, it's important to say that there are as many reasons for being homeless as there are people who experience it. That every everyone has an individual story, and that it's of use to us to try to understand some of those in generalities or or specific groups so that we can target our interventions as accurately as possible. So one of the things that we look at is, for instance, the number of individuals who are homeless versus families who are homeless. Oftentimes families, and we've really in the district read a lot of news in our community about the crisis in family homelessness over the last several years. Families are often young and they're often young mothers with children. That isn't to say there aren't fathers involved too, but very often there are young mothers with children. So the needs for that group of people are very different than say the needs of the women who are coming to N Street Village, my organization, where we're serving adult unaccompanied women. Mm -hmm. So these are women without children. They are generally over 50. And they are more likely to be have vulnerability factors that maybe the young women don't. Each group has their vulnerabilities, but for the people that we serve, we see a lot of folks who have been chronically homeless, which means that their homelessness has endured a year or more consecutively or happened four or more times in a three-year period, and they have a disabling condition. So those are folks who are highly vulnerable in a specific way, and they're also aging. Health issues, mental health issues, and substance abuse are highly prevalent in that uh, group. Right. Well, so let's, I want to unpack this Mm -hmm. just a little bit and start first with individuals who find themselves homeless for the first time. Mm -hmm. The second part of this question is going to be about those who are Mm -hmm. chronically homeless, but Mm -hmm. For individuals or families that are first-time homeless, whether it's younger individuals or some of the older populations that you're serving, what are some of the things that sort of cause homelessness Mm -hmm. in the first place? And Mm -hmm. this could be, I mean, if there are big thematic things, you could could say Mm -hmm. that. If there are just individual stories, what are the kind of things we should be thinking of? Well, I will, that question makes me think of two stories that I think are illustrative of one package of reasons or package of things that can happen to some of the women that we serve and they're powerful stories and in both of these cases these are women um, who've invited me to tell their story so I'm happy to share it with you. Uh, We have a woman who is um, staying in our night shelter now and that is a dormitory style shelter for 31 women (coughs) which is right across the street from our a supportive in-day services. So she is in an environment where she's got 24-hour supports and all of her basic needs met and meals, etc. I met her at the night shelter a couple of months ago when she hadn't been there very long. I think in her mid-50s, she has some hearing loss that she's coping with. And she came to a community meeting and didn't say much but asked a lot of me and other staff and the other peers there about when would she get housing, when would she get housing. And I hadn't known her before. She came up to talk to me after the meeting 
And no one had good answers for her about when she would get housing because everybody's circumstance is different and we know that the deficit of affordable housing in our city is at a crisis point. So that's a, a foundational issue um, that goes beyond any of the individual vulnerabilities that people may come with. So she came up to talk to me afterwards and she told me a very the basics of her story, which is that she's worked for the DC public school system all her life. She's worked in low-level administrative jobs. Her salary has increased a little bit over the years. In the school system, she's a nine-month-a-year employee. And she does not have children and has not been married, but she's taken been very generous with friends and family over the years and says that she didn't save very much. And the cost of her rent kept increasing, and it kept increasing, and it kept increasing until it had really outpaced her income, and she had extinguished all of her savings until finally one day she had an eviction notice, and she left her apartment and came to the shelter, still working her job. Um, and. When she told me this story, she it was rather desperate to understand like what who had the solution when would they when would she know about it, how and when she could get housing. We don't have easy answers for that. That is a big part of the affordable housing crisis and living wage issues in our city that is beyond the scope of what our homeless continuum of care or my organization can do. But the lovely thing that she said to me that I told her I would remember and I wanted to share with other people is that when she told me this story, she said, I know I'm meeting you here and I'm here in this shelter and in this awkward group space. She didn't use those words, those are my words. I know I'm meeting you here, but she said, but I want you to know this isn't me. And I understood her to be saying, I, I am not homeless. This is beneath my, I feel undignified. I feel left behind. And I hope for everybody that experiences homelessness that they feel that way. I think it would be, um, it's important for people to hold on to their sense of it, individualism and self-worth and dignity. But it's hard. Right. Well, so, I mean, that's going to be relevant for thinking about that second group of individuals who experience chronic homelessness, right. what do we know about their situation, the sort of individuals yeah. that find themselves there and yeah. why? Yeah. In some ways, that situation is easier to solve from a mechanical perspective. We know what really strong interventions are for people who have been chronically homeless. These are usually very vulnerable people for any number of reasons, disabling conditions, often mental health, age, physical health, deterioration, um, and a history of homelessness in it, which is, d disrupts everything and is traumatic in its own right. Those people are often candidates for what we call permanent supportive housing. That means housing that's not just affordable, but it's a subtype of affordable. It comes with supports built in that are embedded to surround the person to help them stay stably housed. So to help them avoid health crisis or psychiatric crisis, so if they want to maintain sobriety, if they're able to, to work or what vocational goals they might have. Um, all the 
things that we can provide them with to stay in housing. That's the goal with, with a lot of those folks. Some of the challenges there are figuring out that's an expensive resource in the scheme of things. And we, we often have this much resource that's trying to fit this much need. So we have to have what we consider ethical and efficient ways of figuring out how to deliver those precious resources to the people who need them the most first. Mm -hmm. So our in our city we have a process for assessing everyone. It's a it's a process that all of us who are on the front lines who are seeing people come in are using a common assessment tool that should tell us who those list of people are, who's the most vulnerable and on by order of priority. And as as painful as it is to have to make those choices, that's how we feel it's best to use the resource. So at our organization, we have a lot of permanent supportive housing, and we've really pushed to provide more of that over, and have uh, uh, almost tripled the amount of permanent supportive housing that we're offering mm -hmm. at N Street Village. And we'll do more because there's still a backlog of those chronically homeless people who've been stuck in shelter for a long time. It's kind of a finite group, and we think, you know, in a few years we can get down to a functional zero on right. that group, but we, we've we got to, to push ourselves to do more. The only way to do that is in public-private partnership. We, we really need resources of our government funding partners, and they need community-based organizations to be able to scale anything meaningful. Right. Well, I'd be curious to hear more about that sort of intake screening process and both how you make decisions on sort of what to prioritize, but then maybe also use this as an opportunity to pivot a little bit to what are the different tools or strategies at our disposal to try to combat homelessness, whether it's for the chronic population or for some of those first-time mm -hmm. shock indivi mm -hmm. individuals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wait, sorry, do, your first question again? Why? How do you do oh, the, the intake? The intake, okay. So, the, again, that's a, that we are using, we're training ourselves as a community, and one of the things that's been very important here in D.C. is that we have uh, an interagency council on homelessness that many of us participate in. This is a very collaborative community that wants to make an impact on this problem. Our government partners are at the table, provider partners like us and others, advocates and consumer advocates. So we, that group has has a strategic plan, Homeward D.C., with broad goals that are smart ones, the smartest ones that we could make at the time. Part of that is an agreement that we will do this collaborative assessment approach. And I literally, that so workers from my organization will collect all the assessments that we've done. So somebody, we, we have at least one new woman come to N Street Village every day for services. If we get to know that person, we'll do the assessment. And as we have those assessments, our workers will bring it to a community meeting. They do it, I think it's, I don't know if it's weekly or every other week, but they come to this um, CAP meeting, coordinated entry, and they share who the priority, list of priority people are, and then they also match them in that meeting to what's available. So let's say we've got a, an opening in permanent supportive housing in our program for women with HIV and AIDS. 
and in the meeting somebody says they've done a new interview, this person is highly vulnerable, top of the list, she's a woman, she's got HIV, we've got the opening, they get matched. Right. right. And so what are some of the other types of interventions or resources that you're able to provide? At our organization, we, we adhere to a model that has worked for us and I think may be particularly appropriate and effective for women, which is to, for one thing, provide a full spectrum of housing so that people can, whether they need emergency housing or they need therapeutic housing of some sort, we have a lot of therapeutic housing for both temporary and permanent for substance abuse, mental and mental health. And then we've got permanent supportive housing. So those are various interventions, housing type interventions. And then there's regular affordable housing, which gets to kind of that broader question of what the big picture social issues are that we have to tackle. <coughs> With our housing, we deliver our housing in a congregate model. So everything that we do is based on community. So women are living in they may have their own apartment, an efficiency apartment, but they're living next door to somebody else, down the hall from somebody else. We have staff embedded at all of our locations who get to know people and work with them. They <clears throat> uh, organize community activities as well as meet individually with people and they support the linkage to our whole spectrum of supportive services which we have. So we believe the best thing that we can do is wrap around the folks we serve, not only community, which is in and of itself, we believe, a, um, uh, a both empowering and healing agent, and that we can provide uh, a series of <clears throat> supportive services. Everything from the most basic services, meals, in our, this is our day center, not necessarily for residents, where we've got meals and showers and clothing and mm -hmm. an address and a telephone, etc. And sometimes women will come there before they become a resident of ours. And then we move on to having a lot of therapeutic activities. We focus a great deal on trauma. We know that trauma, both in its more dramatic or explicit forms, as well as trauma as an issue of chronic deprivation and loss. Um, this is, I would say, nearly universal for the women that we serve, especially if you consider that even the experience of homelessness itself is traumatic. So we do a lot of trauma work, substance abuse, mental health, physical health interventions, and a lot of wellness promotions. We, um, meditation and massage and exercise, nutrition. But those are higher order needs than the most basic ones. Right. Well, so what do we know about how well these different interventions work? And listening to you talk now and also earlier at the lunch at DC when you were giving your talk, I, in my mind, I've had at least three different categories of services that are often being provided. At the most fundamental level are a lot of these basic needs, mm -hmm. food, Mm -hmm. shelter, somewhere to go to the bathroom, mm -hmm. to get a shower, where if we have the funds and the logistics machinery mm -hmm. to provide it, it sort of can immediately solve mm -hmm. that problem. A second category that you were just alluding to is some of the mental health 
mm-hmm. or substance abuse issues there, mm-hmm. and there are a variety of programs that are out there that are meant to tackle mm-hmm. those types of issues, and mm-hmm. I'm curious your take on what we know about how, they, how well they work. Mm-hmm. And then the third category is thinking about, well, like the woman in your story who's a teacher who for most of her life was able to meet her basic mm-hmm. needs, didn't have any particular mm-hmm. mental health problems or anything like that, mm-hmm. and yet still finds herself in this position where it seems like that's a whole different mm-hmm. type of issue where mm-hmm. there are economic questions at play that are different than either the basic needs or right. the mental health ones. Right. So what do we what do we know about how well things work? Well, I'll start with that last point because I think you're alluding to what <clears throat> I think about it too, which is that that story of the woman who worked in the school system who'd never been homeless before, to me, that is the, actually the hardest story to solve. On the face of it, it's the simplest. You know, she's got ability, she's got a job, she's got an income, she's motivated to keep going, she, uh, she's well able to put resources together for herself, obviously, in, in an emergency. But we are but we as a small community of people providing emergency services and housing for particularly vulnerable people, in the homeless continuum we are not solving poverty. And that's where we are only as effective as the next link in the chain is available and effective to. So issues of rising rents and gentrification and educational preparation for people so that they're they're maximizing their wage potential or able to um, make a living wage and solving some of those income issues that are these are much broader social policy questions that are painful in some ways for us because they have such a they're the background static of everything we do and for some people like that woman they're they're kind of it, but it's very, very hard. We have, a, we have a, a backlog of people waiting for housing vouchers uh, at the at DC Housing Authority that is so daunting that um, it's closed now. I think it was 14,000 or something like that. People do get homeless preference, but people can wait years. And so these are those bigger questions of where we're really managing inequity and access and intergenerational poverty issues, those are the hardest things. And, it, and it's hard for us to stay in our lane sometimes because we know that we're only going to be so successful if some of those things aren't managed. So that's the hard one. What, what do we know that works for the people that we serve? Well, people, the women who come to End Street Village who take part in our permanent supportive housing or therapeutic housing of, of different kinds or who participate in our wellness programs, we track outcomes for housing, income, employment, and health. And for instance, if somebody comes and lives in our permanent supportive housing, one of the goals of permanent supportive housing is actually housing stability because generally these are people who've been falling out of housing for whatever reason, and they've got that chronic homelessness often, they've got a disabling condition, they may have individual instability that's prevented them from staying stably housed. So the goal with those folks is that they stay, and, that, and we do very well with not only 
helping those people stay. I think our average length of stay for people in PSH is in excess of um, three years. I think, and that that's good. You've got people, and these are oftentimes women who are aging, and they can make an anchor in the community and have supports, et cetera. Um, so to the extent that we provide that housing and that we do good supports to help people stay stably housed, we, we know that, that's, that we can be successful there. The other thing that you want to look at is how you help people get out of temporary housing into a permanent solution. That's harder because that's where you're going to get into some of those issues about availability of rent supplement and affordable housing. And so when people come into our shelter, we, we may find it easier on some level to work with somebody who we know is going to score on the assessment for permanent supportive housing because we know that that intervention works and is there. Income and employment is very, very hard to affect. And about half the people who come to N Street Village, when we first meet them, have no income. The other half have an average about $300 a month. Moving from that to any type of sustainability or self-sufficiency is really not a leap that most people are going to make in their time with N Street Village. Um, we work to make sure income could be benefits as well as wages from work. So we work to make sure survivor benefits or vet benefits or disability income, food stamps, rent supplement, that people are connected to what they're eligible for. And then if they're able to also have wages from work, that um, we'll try to help them get there too. I will say one thing that is not entirely related to the mechanics of that, but that is important, I think, as a values point, which is that I think it's such a misconception that people don't want to work or that people, there's um, a, a bias about laziness that may not be explicit, but I feel like it's good for us to make it an explicit conversation. We know that people are motivated to be meaningful contributing members of their community, and I'll give you a perfect example of that as part of our efforts at supporting vocation and employment, about 10 years ago, we opened a program that we thought would be a part of a work training program where women could work in different parts of our building, laundry, um, hosting in different de departments, uh, sitting at uh, reception areas, answering telephones, doing welcome sessions for people, working in the volunteer office. and. We had considered it to be something that would be job preparation activity and help people get a resume and some experience. There was so much demand the minute that we opened this as a program that we didn't have enough jobs for people and nobody was getting paid. These were all volunteer and these were not people who had necessarily put their hand up to think about employment. It became absolutely clear and in the years since it's been very clear if you come to visit on Street Village, you see women in our programs working all throughout the building. People want a meaningful role in the life of their community. It is fundamental to self-esteem, and it is fundamental to their their well, well-being and some of those higher order needs that people have. Right. As we sort of round out the conversation, looking forward, whether it's the next six months or six years, 
are there particular things you're uh, excited about that are being tried for the first time, or, or maybe conversely, particular questions that you think if we could answer them would really kind of make advances on the problem here? What do you, what do you sort of see coming down the frontier that we should be keeping our eye on? I would say a couple things. One is that we should stay disciplined about the strategic plan that we've adopted in the city and that our administration has been very dedicated about funding and providing resources for leadership and financial resources. So that's Homeward DC and it's published on the Interagency Council website and we are uh, we have a number of functioning committees and it, these are all open to the public. People should get involved and understand what this is about and understand the broad goal of making homelessness rare, brief, and non-recurring by 2020. So I'm excited that we should stay uh, disciplined about that. And I think there are going to be more and more examples of how public-private partnership, including multi-party partnership between private developers and providers and our government can help us really escalate the amount of affordable and supportive housing that we're offering here. At N Street Village we're involved in a number of partnerships like that. We're considering a number more. I think it is very promising that we can really continue to make accelerated progress, especially for those people who are the most vulnerable. Well, thank you so much for your time and perspective on this. Uh, Schroeder Stribling, Executive Director of Industry Village, if people thank want to you. learn more about yes. the www.nstreetvillage.org. Okay, and we'll post that up on the bottom of the screen, too. And I'd also encourage you, if you haven't already, to go to thelab.dc.gov and sign up for our listserv, which includes, among other things, information about our speakers that are coming in at the lunch at DC and other programmatic events we have. Sign up so that you can continue the conversation. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, David. Thank you.